You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. As you're being seated, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37. And if you want to follow along with us, um, with the notes on the screen, you can pull those up if you have a device that can access the Google Drive link that is available in our bulletin. I invite you to do that, or you can reference them uh, at a later time as well. Uh, last week, we were um, beginning our studies in the, the life of Joseph. Um, so we looked kind of at his life at an overview, and the statement that I gave you uh, in looking at Joseph's life from an overview standpoint is that God's sovereign uh, control over daily events ensures the ongoing prosperity of his people. God's sovereign control over daily events ensures the ongoing prosperity of his people. And so what we see in the life of Joseph is God working uh, through every single day of Joseph's life and working through a lot of evil that transpires in his life and working good in the midst of that, ultimately for this bigger purpose of the prosperity of Joseph and his people. Um, so it's not just turning bad things into good things. It's, it's using the whole process to ensure the ongoing prosperity of God's people, um, that, that a famine is coming and Joseph's already in place to solve the problem of the famine, that the nation of Israel needs to grow uh, and not have to potentially be squashed out by other nations around them. And so they grow in the incubator of Egypt, basically, where they're protected by the Egyptians and they grow to a mass number to finally the Egyptians looking around and saying, we might have a problem here. This, this group has gotten significantly large uh, to the point that they could probably overtake us. And so that's all God working behind the scenes to ensure the prosperity of his people. We talked about the greatness of Joseph last week, that um, there's a lot of character traits that we'd obviously want to uh, replicate in our own life. He overcomes envy uh, that his brothers showed towards him. He faces adversity. He resists the sexual advances of Potiphar's wife. Uh, he plans for the future appropriately once he's placed in the uh, head position in Egypt. He forgives those who wrong him. Uh, he consistently sees God's sovereignty in his life. These are great qualities that obviously we'd want to uh, see in our own life. But we talked about the normalcy of Joseph, that he, um, he's, your, he's your basic guy that's not mentioned in the New Testament much. He's not quoted. He's not the direct uh, recipient of the covenant um, like we saw with Isaac and Jacob. He's just your, your average guy who's been adopted into, or not adopted, he's certainly born into the, the Israelite people, into the family of God, but spiritually adopted into God's family. And so looking at the normalcy of Joseph, we can say that God guided Joseph throughout his life. He orchestrated, he orchestrated circumstances for good purposes, and that's something that God does for all believers. So we can certainly relate to Joseph. Um, that he's great, but he's also normal in a way that we can relate to him. Our summary sentence from last week, if our contentment is affected by the success of others, we run the risk of growing bitter, jealous, and angry, which opens the door to even greater sins. We saw how the, uh, the frustration level increased between Joseph's brothers towards Joseph. It started with him bringing an evil report back to dad. They were working in the uh, fields together. He obviously brings some type of report back that paints his brothers in a negative light, true or not true, and it increases the uh, hostility that the brothers feel towards Joseph. 
Then Joseph gets put into a more prominent position of favoritism. Dad was already showing favoritism towards him. Now he gives him this coat that may or may not have had multiple colors, uh, but it was probably built in such a way, sewn in such a way where uh, it communicated that, that Joseph's not going to have to work a whole lot. We talked about it covering his wrists and his ankles, that it being more of a, a lounging type coat, more of a manager type coat versus the type that would have communicated, I've got to get out in the fields and work today. So that increases the hostility that the brothers feel towards Joseph. And then we talked about the dreams that God very intentionally gives to Joseph, knowing that it's going to only elicit more and more hatred from the brothers. Um, and we said, God's big plan is for Joseph to end up in Egypt and to come to power in Egypt. And so God does not stop the brothers from hating Joseph. And in fact, we said last week, he sort of throws fuel on the fire here and, and, and allows the brothers to hate Joseph even more by giving him these dreams that the brothers are one day going to have to bow down to him. Our application last week, we hit the idea that we need to identify the true nature of sin and deal with it, that the brothers had become very frustrated and angry with Joseph when in actuality, they should have probably been frustrated with Jacob, who was showing the favoritism, and then even further so with God, who had given him these supernatural dreams, and yet they allow their discontentment to be affected or applied to Joseph, and they, um, as we're going to see today, plot to kill him. So we talked about seeing the true nature of our sin and dealing with it, and then recognizing that a sinful mindset is not consistent with salvation, um, this mindset of hostility, and really a lack of reconciliation, going back to our theme previously, that this is what happens when you don't reconcile. When you allow bitterness and anger to fester and you don't reconcile, it ends up pushing you towards greater sins. Um, what the brothers end up being guilty of in this passage is, is far greater than what it starts out with. But because they don't reconcile, because they don't make it right, because they don't forgive and, and, and work through these issues with Joseph, it leads to greater sins. Okay, and so that brings us to Genesis chapter 20, or 37, verse 12. And so I'll pick up reading there. Uh, this is right after uh, the dreams have been communicated to the brothers. It says, Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here am I. And so he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields and the man asked him, what are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, they have gone away for I have heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then, he will say, then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead which they're, uh, with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? 
Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let, our, let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and turned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. When Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days, all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this, uh, this story, this account of how you work in the lives of your people. I pray that you would bring encouragement to us, conviction to us where we need it today. I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us this morning and that uh, your word would not return void. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Our sermon title for today is A Proactive God Versus a Reactive God. The reason I've titled it that way is that I really want us to understand the idea here that God is proactively working every step of the way in this story rather than reacting to the character's choices in this story. Okay, We don't serve a reactive God who has to watch and witness evil happening and then try to figure out how to turn that for good purposes that all the evil done in this story is right along according to God's plan and, and is going to be worked out for his best purposes. That's what comes out of the story. It's really what comes out of all of the account of Joseph, a proactive God versus a reactive God. So we see our summary sentence this morning. All of life's events, including the evil at work around us, should be seen as God's proactive working or proactively working for his glory and our good. All of life's events, including the evil at work around us, should be seen as God's proactive working. So you can drop the L-Y there. Proactive working for his glory and our good. And for our kids, everything that happens in life is for our good. Okay, so God is at work in this story. He's at work uh, even in the midst of the evil that's going on in Joseph's life. And we should see it not as him reacting, but him proactively working for his glory and the good of his children. You say, well, well, how do you know that? How do we know that he didn't react to this? Well, in Psalm 105, start reading in verse 1. It says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant. Remember, see, see yourself in this. This is your spiritual heritage as much as it is a Jewish person, 
right? You've been adopted into this. You've been grafted into this, okay? These are your spiritual grandparents. It says, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. When they were few in number, right? Before they get to Egypt, when, when Abraham's descendants were few in number of little account and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. Right? When, when Abraham has to go fleeing after Lot to rescue him, and remember he attacks Chedorlaomer and these other nations, they don't get to reciprocate that. They don't get to fire back and retaliate. God protects Abraham. Right? When, when Isaac lies and, and is fleeing and running and being pushed out of the land, those people aren't allowed to punish him. God protects them. God allows the, the descendants of Abraham to grow. And then in verse 16, when he summoned a famine on the land, who's he? That's God. When God summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until what he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the people set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. Then Israel came to Egypt. Right, like this is more than God just reacting and saying, oh man, the brothers don't like him. Ah, oh, they want to kill him. Oh, they threw him in a pit. What are we going to do now? Like this isn't God reacting to these, these brothers and their plots and their evil. This is God saying, you know what? In, in, in a few years, I'm going to send a famine to this land for reasons we don't know. We don't know why God chose to send a famine, but we're told that God cuts the supply of bread off. And he had sent a man already in advance to be in place to make provision for his people in the midst of that famine. Right, that's God proactively doing this, not reacting to this. And then we learn, and we're not, we're not given more information. I'm, I'm sure it would be great to have it, but we're not told why, but we're told that God's testing Joseph in all of this, right? Like real similar to maybe what Job was going through. We have no idea. Maybe Satan's up in heaven and having a conversation about Joseph and, and says, if you, if you take Joseph and move him away from his family and strip him of the coat that, that makes him think that he's gonna be over this family and you put him away and he'll curse you, we don't know, but it says that God tested him, that the, that the word tested him and he's put in prison and he's bound and shackled and, and, and he has to wait to see the fulfillment of these dreams. And, and eventually he rises to power and God had sent him in advance for a famine that God had already planned. All right, this is a proactive God, not a reactive God. Um, some introductory notes before we jump back into the text. Joseph initially sets out on a 50-mile journey to go find his brothers, all right? So we read about the fact that the brothers are off pasturing their flocks. They're actually at Shechem, which is kind of odd because this is the place where they had to leave because they were a stench to the people. But for whatever reason, the boys are back in Shechem and uh, they're uh, pasturing the flocks. And so Joseph travels 50 miles to see them. So however, whatever kind of pace he could keep up with, this is several days' journey, okay? And then he gets there and can't find them. And then he's told they're in Dothan. That's another 14 miles away. So he's traveling 64 to 70 miles to get to his brothers, okay? There's no explanation given for why the brothers have journeyed so far. It's not illogical to think that they're probably up to no good, right? Joseph's already had to bring a bad report about these guys. 
They may be saying, you know what, let's get away from Joseph. Let's, let's do whatever we're doing away from him so he can't tell our dad about it. Um, you say, well, well, don't put that strike against them. They're not that bad. Well, they are that bad. They're ready to kill their brother, right? So it's not illogical to think that they're doing some other things that are dishonest, and that's why they've kind of journeyed away from dad and the um, family. As I'm studying this this week, I couldn't help but think about Luke chapter 20, right? The Old Testament should always point us to the New Testament and, and seeing things in light of Christ. And I couldn't help but think about Luke chapter 20, verse 9, when Jesus tells a parable. He says, and he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and Pharisees, or the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. Right, this parable is about God sending Jesus to the Jewish people and the Jewish people rejecting him and killing him. And, and then God saying, okay, if you, don't want, if you don't want the kingdom, I'll turn it and give it to the Gentiles. And I can't help but think of that picture here where, where Jacob, at the, as the father, is saying, I'm going to send my son to check on my other sons to see how they're doing, to, to come to them and, and encourage them. And, and when he shows up, they're ready to seize him and to kill him. Right? We talked about some of the similarities between Joseph and Jesus last week, and I think this is another similarity here, that Joseph came to, to bring encouragement and was seized and, and done away with, much like Jesus is going to be done uh, and treated in the New Testament to the Jewish people. Um, Jacob's deceit here, as we read this, comes full circle. You'll remember Jacob, uh, or, uh, Jacob deceived Isaac by putting on clothes and killing a goat and, and feeding the goat to his dad and smelling like his brother. And, and here he's going to be deceived in the same manner. His sons are going to produce clothing to convince him that, that, jo- that Joseph's dead. And, and they're going to slaughter a goat and, and spread the blood on the coat to, to make him believe that an animal has eaten his son. And so his deception comes full circle. He deceived his dad with a goat, and now his sons will deceive him with a goat as well. As we jump into the text this morning, um, I've got three points that I want to give you in relationship to God being a proactive God. First, when we don't know where we are going, God is still directing our paths. When we don't know where we're going, God is still directing our paths. For our kids, God is always with us, even when we feel lost. Some points I want to draw out to you about this. Number one, God knew of the brothers' malicious intent, even if Jacob and Joseph were oblivious. I mean, you read this, and you, you got to think that Joseph and Jacob are starting to pick up on the fact that the brothers don't like him. Remember it said last week that they couldn't even speak to him peacefully? There's got to be obvious tension here. And what we're not told is 
why didn't Jacob just send a servant to do, or yeah, why didn't Jacob just send a servant to do this? Why does he take his beloved son and send him potentially alone to go check on the brothers? Why doesn't he just send a servant to do this? This is a servant work. This doesn't require Joseph. Um, and so it's not clear, were Joseph and Jacob just missing the signs? Were they just oblivious? Were the brothers hiding their animosity really good? Um, what we do know is that God was aware of this, right? Like God wasn't shocked and surprised that, that Joseph wasn't well-received when he shows up with his brothers. God is fully aware of what Joseph is stepping into. We also know that when he is seen by the brothers that they're, they're very conscious of their wickedness. Um, the brothers see him from afar and immediately start to delve into some of the worst plans possible. They're very conscious of their wickedness. Um, this is certainly tension that's already existed. The brothers have this thought out plan and God is fully aware of it. Joseph has no idea. Joseph doesn't know he's stepping into danger, but God's fully aware of it. Number two, God knew where the brothers were located and directed Joseph specifically to them, right? Like God knows that they went to Dothan. God allows them to go to Shechem. God allows him to be delayed in Shechem, right? We talked about the timing of the Midianites crossing paths and uh, them selling them, selling Joseph to this Ishmaelite band. God knows that. God knows. God could have easily redirected him. God could have easily allowed him to come to Shechem and said, hey, you need to go back home. God could have sent an angel to warn him. God does that in Scripture, right? God warns his people at times and says, don't go that direction. Paul was warned about not going to certain places on his missionary journeys. Hey, don't go there, go here. God does that. God doesn't do that here. God knows what he's stepping into and God leads him into it. God leads and directs his path into it. And what's interesting to note for me is that the Shechemite, this, this guy's probably a Shechemite, right? Because they're in Shechem and, and this guy sees Joseph just kind of wandering around like where my brother's at, I thought they'd be here. The Shechemite comes up and treats him better than his own brother's. Right, this guy who's living in this area, whether he's, whether he's from Shechem or, or he's at least in the area and would have known probably what Joseph's family had done to the Shechemites. Remember, they're a stench, like they might try to kill us. This is the guy that should be killing Joseph. Joseph steps into enemy territory here. This guy has probably been affected in some form or fashion with the devastation that they caused to Shechem. This is the guy that should hate Joseph. This is the guy who should kill Joseph. And God says, you know what? I'm not going to let this guy kill Joseph. I'm not going to let this guy throw Joseph in a pit because that won't result in him ending up in Egypt. And so God protects him right here. And Joseph's probably, Joseph may not have even put the pieces together when he's in jail. He may not have been praising God. God, thank you that the Shechemite guy didn't kill me when he found me because he should have been angry at me. But God directs Joseph's past, allows him to meet this guy who says, hey, they're in Dothan. And so he begins to travel to meet up with his brothers in Dothan. Number three, God knew the future of Joseph when the brothers left his destiny to chance, right? This is what Judah says. And let's don't give Judah too much credit because while he decides to sell him rather than kill him, his reasoning is just awful. Number 20, verse 26, then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listened to him. I mean, Judah kind of pipes up and says, we could kill him and get rid of him, but we could profit from this. Like we could sell him and be done with him. If we kill him, he's of no value to anybody else. Let's sell him. And then it's not on us, 
right? Like he tries to justify it and says his blood wouldn't be upon us. Whatever happens to him, we'll just leave it to chance. Or really, we'll just leave him to God and God can do whatever he wants to with him. But we'll profit from this. We'll get rid of him. God knew the future of Joseph. God knew exactly where he was taking him, even though Joseph has no idea. You can see the fact that Reuben, who also doesn't want to kill him and and comes up with the idea of throwing him in the pit, you can see where Reuben and Judah, their altering of the plan shows that they had not really thought out this whole plan. Right? Like, and and that's 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 a warning to us. Like they get into the solution part of it, let's get rid of Joseph, but they haven't really thought through the ramifications of their plan. And once they've seized him and they've started to abuse him and to, to, to control him. Then they're like scrambling a little bit, like, I don't know if I feel great about killing him. Like, sounded good when we saw him from afar off, but now that we have him, I'm not really sure this is what we want to do. And so God has a plan. The brothers' plan's kind of changing. They decide to sell him, though, because it gets rid of him. They don't have to kill him. They make some money. Kind of leave it up to God as to what would happen. Nobody else knows what's going on in this story but God. All right? Joseph doesn't know what's going on. He's stepping into this ignorantly. The brothers think that they know what they want to do, but as they start to talk about it, they're, they're conflicted and confused and not in agreement. And then when they let Joseph go, they have no idea what his future looks like, right? They, 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 whatever happens to him, happens to him. Nobody's in control of this. Nobody knows what's going on except for God. And it's an encouragement to us that when we don't know where we're going, God is still directing our paths. I don't know if you've had incidences in your life where you felt lost, you felt confused, and you had no idea what God was doing. There is a distinct moment in my life. Um, I had moved home from, from Virginia to take care of my mom. I'd been working at the bowling alley, and there were many nights where I felt lost and confused, and what is God doing in my life? Working the 6 p.m. to 3 a.m. shift at a bowling alley in McDonough. When you live in Fayetteville, you don't get home till like after 4 a.m., and you're just like, what am I doing with my life? I got a master's degree, and, and I'm just, I don't know what's going on. I don't know why I'm here. Well, then John Wallace and I decide, for those of you that know John, one of my best friends from college, we decide that we're going to tour uh, South Georgia and, and find Christian schools to work at. Um, and so we set up a two-day interview process where basically we just got in the truck and both of us just rode all over Georgia interviewing at Christian schools. And I remember we got into the worst hotel possible near Savannah. And we're laying there after our first day of interviews. And he's on. we got queen beds. He's on one side of the room. I'm on the other side of the room. And, and I remember just kind of calling out to him. And I said, John, I have no idea how we're supposed to know where we're supposed to go if we get offers from these schools. I said, I have no idea. I said, I don't have family down here. I don't have friends down here. I said, I have no idea how I'm supposed to know where to go in this. I mean, we interviewed at probably seven different schools and we got offers from multiple ones. I said, I have no idea how to know where to go. And I said, John, you've got it a little bit easier because you're going with somebody. Your wife's going to go with you. I'm single at the time, don't know Lauren at the time. And I felt completely lost. And I remember him kind of trying to encourage me. And, try, and I think I, I, I literally think I cried myself to sleep that night because I was so lost. I mean, I just had no idea what I was supposed to do. I knew I couldn't continue to work at the bowling alley. I, I knew that wasn't my long-term destiny. But when I sat back and looked at it, I said, I don't know how to tell if this is the right school or this is the right school. And I kind of felt like the next step was going to probably determine the rest of my life. Like it was probably going to determine who I married. It was probably going to determine the the future decisions that were going to shape the rest of my life. And that ended up being the case. 
Um, and because I didn't know what to do, I turned down all of them and uh, waited for Ryan to call me and said, hey, do you want to come be a youth pastor at Mount Gilead? And I said, you know what? That's close to family. Um, that's a little bit more something that I can handle. And, and, and God ended up leading me that way. But there was, a, there was a time there in that hotel, just a disgusting, cheap hotel. And I remember crying out to God saying, I don't know where I'm supposed to go. And I said, I really need you to direct my path because I really have no idea. And I know that when I make this decision, it is going to shape the rest of my life. And I, and I was able to see God direct my path through that. You know, and if, and if I end up taking a job at one of those schools, like we're not all sitting here this morning. Like, there's a lot of things that, that flow out of God directing my path. And, and so I wanna, I wanna remind you this morning that when we don't know where we're going, God is still directing our path. You may find yourself in a dumpy hotel in Savannah one day saying, God, I don't know where to go next. And the encouragement is that you don't have to know, but that God certainly knows. And God will continue to direct your paths, just like he directed Joseph when he had no idea what he was stepping into. God will continue to direct our paths as well. Number two, when others are indifferent to our suffering, God is sympathetic to our hurt. When others are indifferent to our suffering, God is sympathetic to our hurt. For our kids, God always cares for us, even when we feel like others don't. In thinking about this, we certainly see Joseph's suffering in this passage. We don't get the full brunt of it, though, unless we look at some other passages in Scripture, which we're going to do. But the brothers had opportunity to avoid this, to cease it, and to correct it. Like there's multiple times in this story where the brothers can, can turn this back for good purposes, right? They saw him from afar. They had a chance to make the right decision because they, they have a lot of dialogue about this. Obviously, he's far enough away to where they can concoct this plan. We don't have any indication that they had already come up with this. We have no indication that they were expecting him. They see him, they talk about his dreams, and they quickly come up with this plan, and at any point, Reuben or Judah or anybody else could have stepped up and said, not happening. I hate him as much as you do, but we're not going to kill this guy. Okay? They had the opportunity to avoid it. They don't. Uh, they had a chance to make the decision right and to fix it. They heard his cries for help. And this is where I think we can see a little bit more of the humanness of Joseph. Because if you just read the narrative, you almost feel like Joseph's just a robot that's just being pushed in every direction and he's just going uh, at will, right? Like, you just read it and you're like, okay, Joseph's like, hey, brothers, and they go throw in a pit and he's like, hey, I'm just gonna sit down here until you decide what to do with me and then he gets thrown off to Egypt. You don't see any raw emotion from Joseph here, right? But if you jump to Genesis chapter 42, verse 21, This is where the brothers are concerned about having to meet back up with Joseph. It says, then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. Right? Like they, they don't know that, that Joseph is Joseph yet, but they're experiencing the distress of the famine and then this guy in Egypt is demanding that brothers be left and brothers be sent, and, and they're just really upset. And then it kind of comes out, and everybody starts like, hey, I know what we all did, right? Like, let's, let's, we all remember what we did 20 years ago, and this is why this is happening, right? Like, and then all of a sudden, like, the eerie cries of Joseph from the pit come back to their minds. They're like, we heard him. We heard our younger brother crying for us, begging us to relent from this. And what does the text say they did? So they sat down and ate. 
says after they had done their deed and they throw them in the pit, says they're sitting down and eating. Some of us that have younger kids right now, this is certainly prevalent. It is hard to eat when somebody is crying for help, right? It is almost impossible. We're sitting down last night, Lauren and I. I'd gone to get Chinese takeout because we were getting home late from uh, Adam and Jen's house. And she's like, I don't really want to cook. Can I bathe the boys and get Mally ready for bed? You go get dinner and then we'll just eat together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I get back and I mean, Mally's just screaming and, and just upset and she's tired and she wants to go to bed and Lauren's starving. And she's like, you know what? I want to try to eat before I feed her. So I'm going to just sit her right here and Finally, she looks at me, she's like, I can't eat. I'm not going to be able to eat if, if Mally's going to do this. So I'm going to not eat and go nurse her and put her to bed. Right? It's hard to eat when you see someone else who's in distress and crying and needing help. And the brothers sit down to eat a meal. And Joseph's begging for them out of the pit, begging for them to relent. And they're completely indifferent to his suffering. Right? They're eating steak and, and probably laughing about the dreams that, that aren't going to come true now, and, and they're very indifferent. And for Joseph, I mean, this is his life, this is his people, and they're indifferent to his suffering. They had a chance to reflect as brothers. Reuben's cries of concern, even after the fact that they sell him into slavery, could have led them to fixing it, right? Like Reuben comes back and he's not okay with them selling him off because remember, he wants to try to save him. Remember he says, let's throw him in the pit. And the Bible tells us that in his mind, he's thinking, I'm gonna come let him out. I'm gonna fix this. And Reuben comes crying about it. And, and they could have gone and just bought him back and paid maybe even double to get him back. The Ishmaelites are all about money, right? They don't, they don't have any ties to Joseph. You mean you're gonna pay us double what we just paid you to get him back after an hour of owning him? Sure, like, it would have been easy to get him back. And they don't, right? They're completely indifferent to his suffering. They don't care. They're not genuinely concerned. And Reuben and Judah really aren't commended for their actions in this passage. Their plans are meant more to move the story forward rather than to clear them, right? We said Judah's motivation for selling him, he's our brother, let's don't kill him, let's just sell him and never see him again, right? Like that's not, that's not brotherly love. Reuben, like I said, could easily have gone chasing after Joseph and gotten him back. So what does Reuben do? He participates in the deception and, and makes his dad think that he's dead. So it's hard to really commend Reuben and Judah in this situation. Um, they're, not as, they're, not as, uh, they're not that much better than the other brothers, right? They're pretty indifferent to his suffering as well. While Joseph does not realize it, God is at work around him to protect him. You know, so I was, I was, as I was studying this week, I was thinking... Um, I doubt Joseph only cried out to his brothers, right? Like I, I bet he cried out to God a lot in that pit too. He probably cried out a lot to God as he was being led down to Egypt because he talks about God the rest of his life. I'm gonna show you some passages. He never loses sight of the fact that God's at work. So he doesn't have to have a come to Jesus moment down later in his life where he's like, oh, God's been with me the whole time. Like all along, he's like, God's with me, God's with me, God's with me. So he's crying out for help probably in this pit and doesn't, really receive any immediate comfort, right? Like he's, he's probably not chalking this up as answers to prayer. But what's, what's really cool is that God is at work around us even when we don't see it. Um, and I found a really cool passage in 2 Kings. And I'm gonna read this and you tell me why I would read this passage in connection to uh, Joseph. 2 Kings chapter six, verse eight. It says, once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, at such and such a place shall be my camp. 
But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about uh, which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself more than once or twice. You have the situation here where the king of Syria keeps trying to ambush Israel, and God keeps telling those plans to Elisha, and then Elisha makes it known to the king. Okay? Then in verse 11 it says, And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? He basically says, Who's the mole here? Right? Like, you guys are the only ones here at staff meetings, and I tell you what we're going to do, and then they already know about it. So somebody here is telling the king of Israel. Who, who, who's, who's for the king of Israel here? Right? Like, he's frustrated. He says, One of the servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who's in Israel, he tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. He's like, forget about staff meetings, like stuff you're talking about in your bedroom, this guy's telling the king of Israel. Like God's telling him everything. Verse 13, he said, go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, and behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city, and the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. You have this story here where Syrians get mad, and they're like, okay, let's go get Elisha. And the servant of Elisha walks out and says, we are in trouble. There are a lot of people out here. And he goes and he gets Elisha and he says, we're in trouble. There's a lot of people out here. And Elisha's like, now we got more for us than against us. He's like, what are you talking about? Like, there's just two of us. And he's praising. He says, God, open his eyes so he can see, so he can see what I, what I either see myself or what I just believe is there. Because he opened his eyes and the mountain's full of God's army. Just full of it. Why would I bring that up? It's in the same place where, where, Jacob's, where Joseph's in the pit, right? They're both in Dothan, right? The army's there for both of them. We've talked about this. The army is there for both of them. It's not that Elisha was special, and it's not that Elisha prayed. Elisha just says, hey, show him who's already here. Like, there's more for us than against us. Joseph doesn't get that, right? Like, Joseph doesn't come out of the pit and see all this army of God's people with him. He stays blinded to it. But they're still there. They're still protecting Joseph. They still carry him all the way to Egypt. They're right there fighting battles for him and preserving him. And it's in the exact same place. We've talked about this. Sometimes God clues you in on it and lets you see it. Other times he doesn't. But the encouragement is that even if he doesn't, we can trust that it's still there, that God's people are still with it. God's army is still fighting for us. And he lets some people see it so that we can all believe that it's always happening, Right? And Joseph had God's armies working with him. He just doesn't get to see it. And while Joseph doesn't realize it, God is answering his prayers. You know, and I was trying to think like, what prayers would I be praying if I was in the pit? You know, I'd probably be praying, God, change the hearts of my brothers. Like, help them to see that we can fix this. And and I'd probably be praying, God, I I don't want to die here. Like, get me out of this pit, save me. And God answers those prayers, right? He does change the hearts of the brothers. They don't kill him. They sell him, right? And Joseph may have been thinking, I wish I'd been a little bit more specific in my prayers and, and said how I wanted the hearts to be changed. 
But either way, if I'm praying those prayers, which I think those would have been the prayers I'm praying, God does answer them. He changes the hearts of the brothers. They had set on killing him, and they decide to sell him, and his life is preserved. And he doesn't stay in the pit because they probably would have abandoned him there and let him starve to death, and there's no water down there, and that's significant because he's not going to last long. And God does get him out of the pit. And yeah, he ends up in slavery, but God is protecting him. He's preserving him in ways that Joseph doesn't fully understand. But God is right there with him. So when others are indifferent to our suffering and we think nobody cares, nobody understands, nobody, nobody gets it, God is very sympathetic to our hurt. And he's working in the midst of it and he's working good for us. He's a God who understands. He's a God who can sympathize with us. Number three, when evil is doing its worst, God is accomplishing his best. When evil is doing its worst, God is accomplishing his best. For our kids, God can always work good even when others are being evil. God does his best work in the midst of these people trying to do their worst. God provides the very thing that causes the greatest hostility, right? Like when you go back to Genesis chapter 37, it's the dreams that are making them angry, right? It's not really even the coat that that fires them up. When they see him coming, it's the dreams that quickly come back to mind. It says in verse 19, they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him, throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. Right? They're not focused in on the coat. They're not focused in on the father's favoritism here. It's the dreams that drive them crazy. It's this placement that God has upon his life and the possibilities of them having to follow him that's driving them crazy. And God's the one that provided it. God is the initiator here. He provides the thing that causes them to get so hostile towards him. Rather than redirecting Joseph at Shechem, we already said God drives him further towards his brothers. Rather than allowing Reuben to save Joseph, he prevents it. Think about that. Like, as you're reading it, you're like, ah, here's how God's gonna fix this. God's got Reuben. He's changing Reuben's heart. Reuben's got a plan. Reuben's gonna save Joseph, right? Like, if you're reading it for the first time, you're like, there's God working. God's gonna save him with Reuben. No, God actually makes sure that Reuben can't save him, right? Like, whatever it is that takes Reuben away, God ordains that the Ishmaelites come by at that time so that Reuben can't stop the plan. Reuben's like, I want to save Joseph. God's like, I don't want you to save him. I need him to go to Egypt. So I'm going to make the flocks require your services right now or whatever it is. Reuben's the only brother that we know of that's not there. And that's when they decide to sell him. And God ordained that whole thing, right? God wants him in Egypt. Psalms 105, a famine is coming and I'm sending a man before the famine. God's working in the midst of this evil and he's not going to let anything or anyone mess it up. And then where we're going to be in the next couple of weeks, God specifically causes Joseph to end up in the house of Potiphar. All right, he clearly makes that happen. 36, uh, 37 verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him to Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. You skip the Judah Tamar story and you go to 39. It says, now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. Verse two, the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. He was in the house of his Egyptian master. God 
is working his best in the midst of this worst possible plan that his brothers could have come up with. Some implications for us from this account. Number one, God can work out his greatest purposes when people are doing their worst actions. God can work out his greatest purposes when people are doing their worst actions. Life's full of inequalities, it's full of unfairness, it's full of tragedy, and God can work in all of it for good purposes. He doesn't react to it. He proactively has already planned for it. Unchecked hatred and jealousy can lead to greater sin. The brothers are in the position they're in because they've allowed their sin to go unchecked and they've not reconciled as they should have. And it leads to greater sin as they seek to murder their brother. Unchecked hatred and jealousy can lead to greater sin. It's also worth mentioning, number three, that despite our best efforts to conceal our sin, God sees our actions and will always bring them to light. Despite our best efforts to conceal our sin, that's what the brothers do. Like they, they ship him off and then there's this computer. What are we going to do with him? How are we going to handle this? Dad's going to be mad. And so they go with their original plan. Let's, let's make it look like he got eaten by an animal. And then 20 years goes by and you don't hear anything of it. And I can't imagine that it was an easy 20 years. I imagine there was times where, where they were reminded of it and probably at times where they were torn a little bit about it. But as we said last week, not anything repentant because they never bring it up. They never try to go find him, nothing. Um, and I can't imagine the conversations that took place between the brothers and Jacob, right? Like Joseph says, hey, all's forgiven. God meant it for good. I imagine Jacob saying, come here come here. You know, like 20 years you let me believe that my son was dead. You know, like I don't know that that was a a good family fanfare from the dad's standpoint. Like Joseph can forgive and and forget and say all's good, but boy, I think it was probably hard for Jacob to to get over that. You know, looking at his brothers, and we even see some of the curses that he lays out for him when he's dying. It's like, oh, like I love you guys, but mm, like that's, that's hard for me to swallow that you let me deal with that grief because I mean he's still grieving when he when he meets up with Joseph right like he doesn't really ever get over it um number four and this is good for our kids allowing someone to believe a lie is the same as lying right if you read the text technically they don't tell a lie to their dad right it says um they sent the robe of many colors or they, it says they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, dipped the robe in the blood, and they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. He identified it and said, it's my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Right? Jacob concocts the story, not the brothers. And that, that fell right into their plan. Like, hey, if we do it this way, we're not really even lying to dad, right? Like if we sell him, we're not killing him. There's just a good chance he'll die at some point down there. If we, if we let dad draw his own conclusions that we haven't lied, that's dad drawing his own conclusions about that. It's, just, it's the same as lying though, right? But there's times where we potentially can allow someone to continue to believe a lie and we know the truth and potentially withhold that information and it's, it's really the same as lying. Um, allowing someone to believe a lie is the same as lying, and then they have to create more lies or at least just some, some odd 
conversations because it says, all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Like, if you're one of the brothers and you know where, where Joseph is, I can't imagine what kind of empty, hollow comfort you're trying to offer. Uh, you know, Dad, it was just his time. You know, like, God always has a plan, and, you know, God ordained that animal to come across his path. And to, I mean, just you, you would have had to fill up his mind with lies to offer any type of comfort in this situation. You know, and that's just a reminder to us that, you know, one lie creates other lies. And, and allowing someone to believe a lie is the same as lying. Number five, intending to do the right thing and actually doing the right thing are not the same thing. Intending to do the right thing and actually doing the right thing are not the same thing. All right, I said, don't give Reuben credit here. Reuben had the idea not to kill him, and Reuben had the idea to save him. You know, Jesus says if you, if you hate your brother and, and think about killing him, that you're guilty of murder. And if you, if you think about somebody and lust after him, it's the same as adultery. Jesus connects the fact and says, if you think about it, you're really guilty of doing it. But I'm not aware of any scripture passage that says if you think about doing good things, but don't ever do them, that it still counts. Right? I don't think, it, I don't think the flip works. And, and if you've got to, I tried to think of verses that would, would say that, and I, can't, I don't have any. But Jesus says if you, if you think about doing sinful things and you don't do it, that there's still some guilt there applied to you for even thinking about doing it. You need to confess it. There's not anything that says you'll get credit for thinking about doing good things, but never following through with it. Right? We don't get any commendation towards Reuben here that, hey, you were the guy that didn't want to kill him and you had a plan to save him and, and you didn't. Like, there's no commendation here for Reuben. Um, and that's a good reminder to us that I think a lot of times we intend to do good things. We intend to, to, to do a lot of good and, and we never really see that come to fruition. And we, we kind of justify it to ourselves. Well, I had good motives. I had, I had good intent and just didn't ever get around to it. Um, that's Reuben. Reuben had some good intent here, just didn't ever get around to doing it. Um, and Joseph ends up in Egypt, and um, God has to work through that evil. All right? Application. And we'll wrap up here. Uh, I must choose to see all of life as God working for me rather than questioning why God is against me. Because there's, there's really two responses that you can have here. You can either be this guy, Joseph, who goes through all this, and you can either respond and say, God is for me, right? Like the world's against me, Satan's against me, evil's against me, but God just keeps coming through and he's just for me over and over and over and, and he's not preventing all this stuff, but he's, he's turning it for good, right? And, he, and he's working good. Or we can take the other approach and say, God's against me. Like he's done this and this and he's allowed this to happen and he didn't stop this from happening. God must be against me. And we see two people in the story have those two different approaches. Genesis 46 or Genesis 42. Verse 36. And Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, because he's been held captive in Egypt. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Remember, Elisha says, 
there are more for us than against us, right? Like he says, yeah, you're right, there's an army out here, but those that are for us, they're more than those that are against us. And Jacob fails to see that in his mourning for the 20 years without Joseph, right? Like he sees all these things as being against him. He's not connecting the fact that, oh, there's a famine and my son's down there saving us from the famine. And we're gonna move down there and grow into a great nation because God's gonna save us by using the Egyptians to protect us. He's not putting the pieces together and, and may not even be trying to put the pieces together, right? Because it's already been told to Abraham and probably passed down that, you guys are going to end up in slavery for 400 years, and then you're going to come out a great nation. Like, he could have potentially put the pieces together, but he may not even be trying. And for us, the application for today is we either have to, to fight for the mindset that God is always for me, right? Like, no matter what bad thing happens to me, right? God is for me, right? Even in our prayer request, Andrea's dad dealing with cancer. God is for that family. Tara uh, experiencing a car wreck. She's not even the driver, and now she's out of work because somebody else's mistake, right? God is for her. If she's a child of God, God is for her. Andrew's a child of God. If she's a child of God, God is for her, not against her, right? And that's where we have to fight for that mindset. And when things that are undesirable come into our life, we filter it through Romans 8.31, that, that nothing can separate us from God's love, right? Um, we filter it through Hebrews 11.6. That if, um, that if we're to be saved, if we're to truly be a child of God, if we're really to experience salvation, Hebrews eleven six 6 says, um, without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. That he's for us, not against us. Jacob says, all this stuff has come against me. Joseph has a different perspective. Um, we'll get to these verses, but he never lost sight of God being with him. Right In chapter 39, when Potiphar's wife makes advances, he says, I can't do this against God. The God who, who didn't save me from the pit, the God who didn't save me from the, the slave traders, the God who didn't save me from being sold into slavery here, the God who I could very easily abandon and say, you know what, forget it. What happens in Egypt stays in Egypt. You know, like I'm abandoning my morals here. No, he says, I'm not gonna do this against God, Right? Um, he goes on uh, in multiple passages to talk about God being the provider of the interpretations of dreams. He gives credit to God for the children that he has. Um, He gives God credit for working all of it for good. There's no indication that Joseph ever resented his brothers for their actions. We don't have any examples of self-pity, rage, anger, or desire for revenge. That's the exact opposite for those that have seen the movie Count of Monte Cristo who ends up in jail and he's angry and he's vengeful and he's self-pitying himself. He goes through all these different phases when he's in jail for like a lot of years. And then he gets out and wants to wreak revenge on all these people that harmed him. And at the end of the movie, it finally connects that like, and eh, none of that's satisfying me, right? Joseph doesn't seemingly have to go through that. It seems like he stays connected to God's good purposes throughout the story. And that's certainly to be commended and certainly something that we can work towards ourselves. Because remember, it's just normal Joseph, Right? It's normal Joseph who's not quoted in the New Testament. He's not mentioned much in the New Testament. He's just one of God's children who God's always working good for. And, and, and God makes the same promises to us. All right, So we've got to choose to see all of life as God working for me rather than questioning why God is against me. Let's pray together. Lord, as we, as we come to you right now, um, 
I know that there's probably a lot of different things that a lot of people are dealing with. Things that they would not desire or choose for their life right now. Um, God, we're thankful for a story like Joseph, who is a is the uh, prime example of somebody who had a lot of things come into his life that he certainly wouldn't have chosen. And God, we know you were testing him, and, and we know that his faith came out as shining gold. And God, we look to him, and uh, we want to be like him. But God, we don't want to miss the fact that this is really all about you and the work that you accomplished in Joseph. That it's because you're working all things for good that Joseph's able to respond the way that he does and able to persevere the way that he does because he was clinging to you. God, we recognize that that Joseph didn't do anything special beyond simply putting his faith and trust in you being a God who is for him. God, I pray that while I would expect that our our eyes will be blinded to the armies of, of yours that surround us as we leave today and accompanying us back to our neighborhoods and to our job places throughout this week. Um, God, I don't expect you to open our eyes to see those. But God, we know that they're there because we've got enough examples in Scripture to see that there are far more beings working for us than against us. And Father, we're thankful that you direct supernatural beings, your angels, to guard us and to guide us and to protect us. And so God, I pray that we'd cling to those hopes that whatever undesirable things we experience this week, whatever circumstances we encounter, that we would be able to filter it through what we've talked about today, that we would see you as a God who is for us all the time, and that you're, you're, you're a lot better at being for us than anything is again about being against us. So God, I pray that we'd find encouragement that we need. I pray that our kids would be able to find encouragement um, as well, being able to talk through some of these things with their parents. Um, that they would grow up in their faith, that they would see that they serve a God who can accomplish anything, even when evil is trying to accomplish its worst. We thank you that you always know where we are and where you're taking us, even when we don't. We're thankful that you always understand our hurts and you're always rescuing us from those things, even when we don't see it in the way that we want to. And we're thankful that you work good in the midst of evil. pray that you would help us to continue to see that more and more. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.